As you take your seat, please turn in your Bibles, if you would, back to the book of Colossians. I tried to give you Paul's prison epistles this morning, uh, Philemon's, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, but um, you know, Colossians was, was one of those prison epistles, so if you'd please uh, turn in your Bibles to Colossians uh, chapter 3, we're going to consider the first four verses this evening. Colossians 3. Verses 1 to 4. Before I read, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a father who gives good gifts to your children. As we just heard, read, and explained to us, Lord, that you are like a good father that disciplines those whom he loves. And Lord, we know that the chief instrument of your discipline is your word. It teaches us who we are. It teaches us what we must believe. It teaches us what we must do as is becoming of your children. And Lord, we pray that we would heed that great gospel exhortation that as the Apostle Paul will instruct us tonight, that we would set our minds on things that are above and namely upon Jesus Christ, our Savior. Do this, we pray, through the ministry of your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1. This is God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. There is an old Latin mantra uh, that some of you may be familiar with, whether you fancy yourself a Latinist or not, memento mori. Have you ever seen those two Latin words, memento mori? Memento mori, translated into English, means remember that you must die. And if you've ever seen these words, you may have seen those images accompanying them that are pretty familiar. There's an hourglass that lets you know that time is slowly wasting away, wilting flowers, but perhaps the most prominent and noteworthy figure associated with memento mori is that of a human skull. Uh, It reminds us a sober reminder that eternity is just on the other side of death, that we will not live forever, and so we must factor eternity into the decisions that we make each and every single day. It reminds us that we need to do our soul business with God. That's memento mori. The lesser known, but I'd say equally important Latin phrase is memento vivere. It's memento mori's inverse. We shouldn't just remember that we will die, As the people of God, we should also remember that we must live. This mantra reminds us that the hearer, yes, while his life is short, is to remember that life is worth the living. We mustn't live with a petrified fear of death, but live each day with a sense of purpose and determination to make the most of the time that the Lord has granted to us, the most of our time, opportunities, and our resources. And though Paul does not use either Latin phrase, he was writing in Greek, you remember, he doesn't use either Latin phrase in the space of his epistles, 
The language of life and death is coursing through the whole of the book of Colossians, and it features very prominently here in chapter 3 of his letter. He reminds the believers that they are, at the same time, dead and alive. He says, you have died. You have died to the reigning power of sin, and at the same time, Christian, you are alive. You are a people of the resurrection. Notice what he says. Since you have been raised with Christ, a statement of who they are right now. There are people who are alive. Therefore, by virtue of their identity as being resurrected to newness of life, they are to seek those things that are above. And then he phrases this same exhortation and statement of their identity negatively in verse 2. He says, do not set your mind on things that are on the earth, because you have died to the things of the earth. We're Calvinists. Now, surely your pastor has said to you before, whether from behind the pulpit or in Sunday school, uh, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Our identity shapes our activity. Who we are uh, is reflected in the things that we do. And so, because we are people who have been raised with Christ, Paul tells us that by virtue of who you've been made to be by God's grace, therefore, you are to think on things that are above. Our identity as sinners informs our sinful activity, but now our identity as saved people informs our new activity, how we spend our time, what we expend our mental energies focusing upon. Who we are must be reflected in what we do. That is what Paul's saying. He's saying very simply, remember that you have died with Christ and remember now that you are to live for him in all things, in everything that you think, everything you say, and everything you do. So building off of the text this morning where we focused upon the preeminent Christ and how he is worthy of all of our worship and every facet of our lives, what we see tonight in the text is this very simple thing. Because we have been made alive in Christ, God's people are to live for him in all things. Because we've been made alive in Christ, because of these new identities that we have, therefore, our activity is to be living for him in all of life. We're going to have three points this evening. First, Paul tells us what our identity is, stating it positively and negatively. Then he exhorts us, having given us this indicative of who we are, he then exhorts us to this new activity, setting our minds on things above. And then third and finally, he sort of pulls the veil back on this present age and reveals to us our identities that will be made manifest at the second coming of Christ. So those will be our three points. First, our identities, then our activity, and then third, the revealing of our identities. First, our identity. G, uh, P- Paul tells us that we have a positive and a negative identity. He says that we are a people who have been raised with Christ. This is the great rationale. This is the grounds upon which he makes his later exhortation. He says we've been raised with Christ. By virtue of Christ's bodily resurrection from the grave on the third day, we have already experienced a spiritual death and resurrection. 
Now, do not get me wrong. We are looking forward to the day as we're going to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes as we partake the supper together. The people of God are anxiously awaiting that day when our Lord and Savior returns in judgment upon the clouds and sets all things right. We're looking forward to a bodily resurrection of all from the dead and all to appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an answer for the deeds they have done in the flesh. We are looking forward to that great day, to that day of resurrection. But Paul here uses a present perfect tense. He says, verse 3, or verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ. The present perfect tense is speaking of a past event that has ongoing and present significance. So I ask you, how is it that he can say that we're resurrected? Jesus hasn't come back yet. The resurrection of all of the dead has yet to happen. So how can Paul use this verb tense? You know how. Because we've experienced a resurrection from spiritual death to a newness of life, even now. You see, if then you've been raised with Christ speaks to the fact that once we were dead in trespasses and sins, but now we have been made alive together with Christ. We already belong, as one commentator says, to the age to come. This evening, if you are in Christ Jesus, you have one foot in the present and you have one foot in eternity. When Jesus says, uh, in the Gospels, that uh, all who call out to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. When it says um, we're preaching through the Gospel of John uh, at Westminster, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That you have everlasting life right now. You've yet to come into the full possession thereof, but you have a newness of life. You have eternal life residing within you through the power of the Spirit right this moment, Christian. The same God who resurrected His Son from the grave on the third day is the same one who gives you this resurrection power to mortify sin in your members. You have this resurrection power at your disposal through the power of the Spirit within you. Previously, you did not have the power to fight sin. You did not. You loved it, and you were its willing slave. But now, through the ministry of the Spirit, you can put to death the sin that used to reign in your mortal members. What was once impossible in Romans 8-7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Now, through the Spirit, you wage war against sin. So this is where the Apostle Paul is speaking positively of our identity, saying you've been raised with Christ. Through your union with Christ, sin's slavish dominion has been broken over your life, and you are dead to it. You are at the same time alive and dead. Verse 3, for you have died. Paul could not be more definitive in describing our relationship to sin. What's more definitive than death? When you die, that is the end. That is when you go from the realm of the living, when you go to death. 
And once you die, you, you don't become alive again, save Jesus Christ, right? His resurrection. But when we die, that's it. It's over, and the life that we lived, it was, it's past tense. And so what Paul is saying is that when you come to Jesus Christ, you have such a relationship with your former life of sin as death is definitive as a clean break with the life you once lived. You're dead to sin. You're dead to its reigning power. There is still remaining sin, yes, but there is no more reigning sin. That's good news. That's good news for those of you who find yourselves caught in a sin pattern or in this nagging and besetting sin that has dominated you all of your life and you feel that you are powerless to fight against it. Indeed, you are powerless by yourself. But through Christ, you can do all things through him who strengthens you. You have the power of the resurrection in your toolkit. When God calls you, he equips you. He equips you to fight against sin and to, as one of our friends in North Florida, uh, the RUF campus minister, Tommy Park, likes to say, that God, through the Holy Spirit, he gives you the power to become who he's already declared you to be. In justification, God declares us not guilty, child, one with Christ. And through the power of the Spirit, he progressively makes us into that very image. He makes us into what he's already declared us to be. We're in Christ. We're dead to sin. We're alive in him. And I, and I love this image here, just to encourage our hearts, because it's hard to believe that, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time. And the more you see your sin, perhaps you grow increasingly despondent and you think, a Christian should not struggle in this way. A Christian wouldn't wrestle with sin like this. Where do I have the power to fight against this? Paul says, look up. Don't look within, look up. Because look at what is true of you. Look to whom you're united. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The fact that he's seated, Christ's session, is meant to teach us that his work is finished. Though there is still work to be done, his, his work of being the atoning sacrifice for his people that work is done. What he said upon the cross, it is finished, tetelestai, is indeed true. There was a boy working with my grandfather. He was my best friend. I would spend most of my weekends with him. It snows a good deal up in Maryland. I'm not used to Florida where it doesn't snow ever. But we would split wood in preparation for, win for winter, maybe like two cords of wood, and we'd stack it. We would build piers and cut the grass. And my grandfather, he was a worker bee. Uh, he was working well into his 80s, and we really wouldn't ever sit down until the work was done. We'd keep going and going and going, but we wouldn't sit, we wouldn't kick back and enjoy our Diet Cokes until the work was done. That's the picture that we have here. The Christ says, it's finished. My atoning sacrifice is sufficient for them. And... and Though he's in this exalted place, I mean, think of it, he's at the Father's right hand, seated. F.F. Bruce says of this exalted Christ, because he has been elevated to the position of highest sovereignty over the universe, he pervades 
the universe with his presence. He is at the Father's right hand, having received the glory and the honor that are due to his name for his mediatorial work on your behalf and mine, and yet he is still mindful of us. He still pervades the universe with his presence. He still cares for us. Did any of you go to high school with a successful athlete or maybe a uh, prominent person? They're featured on the television, and you know, once they become famous, suddenly they're uh, too big for all of the little people back home. Not so with Jesus. No, he was so humble, he was so loving, that he condescended in the incarnation to take the sinner's sins upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And even having completed that work, he doesn't say, glad that's over, they're on their own. No, he continues to pervade the universe with his power. He is ready at hand. He is a willing and able Savior, and he supplies for your needs every single day. He's mindful of you still. That's amazing. That is truly amazing. This is who we are. We are dead to sin. We are alive with Christ. And Christ, who lives and intercedes for us the uttermost, is in our corner at the right hand of the Father. That's who we are. And then, by virtue of who we are, having been told that we have these lofty and exalted identities now, Paul says that this is to be the great activity of your life. You are to seek the things that are above. Again, he phrases it positively and negatively under the second point. We've been told our identity, now we've been told our activity. It is to set our things on, minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Literally, the Greek in this portion of the text, on things that are above set your mind. The emphasis is really on, this is the object. These are the things that you're supposed to focus on. The things that are above. Philippians 4.8, Paul does this same work with the church to which he's writing, the church of Philippi. I don't think it's without reason that Paul gives these similar exhortations to think on things that are above both to Colossians and to the Philippians, because he's writing both of these letters from prison. And think about what a boon that would have been to Paul while he's in Roman prison, because what else does he have to think on but things that are above? He says, even now, while I'm in chains, even now, while I anticipate that I'll be poured out as a fragrant drink offering, I want to turn your hearts and minds to the very things that I've turned my heart and mind upon, and that are such an encouragement to me. Philippians 4.8, he gets to the mind. Brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Think on these things. Don't think on things that are on the earth. Or don't think about them inordinately. We should not have earthly minds. We should not live in this world as though we were practical atheists. And you know that's the temptation. As I said this morning, it's all too easy for us to get out of bed, to go about our routine, and to live our lives 
without a greater sense of purpose than that of our unbelieving neighbor. It's a good thing to want to provide for our children. It's a good thing to desire a spouse. It's a good thing to be effective and to be influential even in this world. We want to be people who do good, but the greatest good, that driving motivation that ought to get us out of bed in the morning, is the things above. We live for Christ in all of life. I think a good question that I often ask myself, ask myself am I really doing this? Am, am I really doing this? Is I'll ask myself, um, where are my eyes? Because the heart takes in that which the eyes behold. And so if I care about what other people think of me, maybe my time is spent on social media and trying to build a good name or reputation for myself. Or if my mind is, is fixated, if I'm thinking on things that are below, like the bottom line or like money, well then your mind's going to be on your bank accounts and your bank statements. And your security will go up and down with every ebb and flow of the stock market. Maybe if you're a person who cares what other people think or if you value your relationships, you're going to spend time worrying about what others around you think of you instead of living for God. You see, we need to have our minds set on things above, and that sets the trajectory for all our lives. Now, there are a couple of motivations, uh, or two motivations that I want to give you uh, this evening for why you ought to, by virtue of who you are, look on things that are above. Two rationales for this great activity of our lives, setting our mind on things above. I get these from the Puritan, and I love the Puritans. Uh, one of my favorites is a man named Jeremiah Burroughs. Jeremiah Burroughs was born in 1600. I believe he died in 1646. And it was during COVID that I got a hold of uh, his lesser-known treatise. His best-known book is probably The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. If you haven't read it, you must. Right? Pastor's imperative. You must read that book. But I got a hold of this one, and the title's what struck me, The Evil of Earthly-Mindedness. The evil of earthly mindedness. And um, what he's doing in that book is he's trying to turn our eyes heavenward. He's trying to turn our eyes from beholding the transient and vain things of this world and fixing our minds on things above. And one of the uh, motivations that he offers, I, I give you here. Burroughs writes, Consider how short the time is that you have in this world. If a man comes into a city to do some business of great weight and consequence and has only a little time to spend on it, he does not mind anything he sees in the city. He does not mind anything that he sees in the city. He does not mind anybody that comes by him, but he goes up and down the street minding his own business. Oh, it should be so with us, brethren. Oh, have you so much time for spending the very spirits of your souls upon the things of this earth? Can you spare so many hours? What Bros is saying is that your life and mine is short. We actually don't even know how long they'll be. Eternity is just on the other side of death, and we do not know when the Lord will call us home. And so we need to be busy about our master's business. Paul says that we're not to spend our, mi our minds or to spend our lives like boxers beating the air, but that we're to be people who run a race, that there's a finish line, and that we strive for the upward call of Christ. We're to be industrious about God's business. Why do we seek things that are above? Because we only have so much time. 
Ask yourselves, how do you spend your time? Do we spend our time trying to acquire more earthly goods, more earthly comforts, more things to make us feel secure? Or are we pursuing those lasting things, the true things, the true things of God that will last when God comes and this world is purged, burned with fire, is the language of Peter? Are we investing in the things of real value, of great importance? Then also, I'd say, the only way that you can do this, the only way that you can seek things that are above, is if you first trust him who is above. If you trust him to take care of all the earthly matters that ordinarily arrest your mind and your attention. How do we not become anxious over earthly things and not get dominated by the matters of daily bread or retirement or the economy or our homes or our livelihoods? How do we block those things out? Burroughs says that you need to trust him who has promised that he will provide for your needs. You need to remember who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. My sister, I'm the fourth of five kids. Uh, We were a one-income family for, for most of my life. But uh, I remember the story goes in my house that my older sister, when she was young, probably seven or eight years old, she would go throughout the house and she would turn off all the lights in the rooms, even while people were still in there. And my parents, sort of annoyed by this, would say, Amanda, why do you keep turning off all of the lights? And she said, Mommy and Daddy, I, I don't want us to be poor. She was trying to save money on the electric bill. And so my parents had to counsel her and say, Amanda, we have enough money. We have more than enough money to keep the lights on. We have enough money for food, for college, for sports, for all these things. We'll take care of your needs. You see, she was so fixated upon thinking that she needed to uh, make all of this happen herself, that she needed to take matters into her own hands, that she forgot who it was that provided for her needs. Friends, when you and I forget that it is God who provides for our needs, we're like that little girl who turns all the lights off in the house. Burroughs says, of the tenor of our lives, he says, children do not much mind the things of the earth to provide for themselves because they know that their father will provide for them. And so he says, let your care be to do your duty to your father, to walk as a child, but do not let it be for the things of the earth you as much disavow the care of your father when you do so. Friends, we are to believe in the holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of our father. We are to remember that he has provided for us Jesus Christ, and if he's giving us Jesus Christ, what's the great Pauline logic? How will he not give us all things? All things needful for our preservation, all things needful for our sanctification, God in Christ gives us them all. So you must trust him. So this is our great identity. This is to be our activity, setting our minds on things that are above. And now third and finally, as we close, we see uh, the revealing of our identity in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears... When Christ, who is your life, appears, you see that Christ is our life, union with Christ, oneness with him. When he appears at his second coming, 
then you will also appear with him in glory. You will appear with him in glory. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. That's the teaching of this text. Uh, you see in verse 3 there, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our lives being hidden with Christ in God means at least two things. The first meaning of hidden is that it means our lives are secure. If you own a firearm or if you own valuables, uh, the place that you never keep those is on the coffee table in your home. All right? Because uh, that's not a safe place to keep them lest somebody come in and take your valuables and take your firearms. Where do you keep them? You keep them someplace hidden because that hidden place is more secure. And so what Paul is saying to the Colossians is that your salvation at this present moment is kept hidden for you in Christ, in God. That it is secure. As I referenced 1 Peter this morning, that our salvation is an imperishable inheritance. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, of superior quality to anything that you or I could pursue on the earth. And it is kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, and listen to this paralleling language, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God, but when Christ comes, that which is hidden will be revealed, which brings us to the second dimension of that word hidden, is that it's obscured to the eyes. When we tell the world that we believe in a resurrected Savior and that we are citizens of an otherworldly kingdom, they kind of cock their head just a little bit and they say, really? You live next door to me. Um, you're a sinful person. You're not perfect. And yet you claim that you belong to this eschatological kingdom, to this spiritual kingdom. They don't see it. They don't see the truth of the gospel. They don't see the kingship and the lordship of Christ over all of creation, head over all things to his church. From the outside looking in, the world just sees a bunch of ordinary common people. When Jesus came in the incarnation, he did not come to save the righteous. He came to save sinners. And sinners they were, and sinners they are. Those are the kinds of people that Jesus comes to save. Not impressive people. Not powerful people. Not the movers or the shakers or the usual suspects. No, Jesus has come and revealed salvation which is hidden from the wise. Do you remember in Matthew 11, he actually is praying to his father. He says, Father, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the worldly wise and that you've revealed them unto babes, to little children. Our salvation is hidden. And if we're being honest, sometimes it feels hidden from us because we don't always see things the way that God sees them. We don't see the church the way that God sees it as a beautiful bride that he's adorning, that he's beautifying, that he hasn't abandoned. Sometimes we look at the church and we say, what a mess. It all seems hidden and obscured to us. But the good news is, is that when Jesus comes back, 
the veil will be removed. And we will see ourselves and the world will see us for what we've been the entire time. We've been God's children. We've been resurrected with Christ. We have been dead to sin. We will have the manifestation of our glory, of our derivative glory that we receive from Christ by grace through faith. You will also appear with him in glory. We'll be part of that heavenly entourage. We will sing in unison with the cherubim and the seraphim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and who is to come. We, together with the creation, say with Romans 8.17, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing, for the pulling back of the veil of the sons of God, for the revealing of our true selves. Jesus says in John 14.19, because I live, you too will live. There will be a glorious liberty that will be manifested on the day of their revelation, F.F. Bruce says. For the day of revelation of the Son of God is also the day of revelation of the sons of God. When he is revealed in all his glory, we will be revealed in ours. And so I'd ask you as, as we conclude uh, this evening, are you investing in the things of eternity? Are you setting your minds upon the things that are above? Are you anticipating and longing for that day of the glorious return of Jesus Christ and the revealing of your true identity? If not, let me appeal to you uh, one last time, uh, really uh, harping on and um, riffing on Jeremiah Burroughs to illustrate this for you. I don't know if you have any financial people in the congregation. I don't have a mind... Um, for money or numbers, I'm a minister of word and sacrament, not numbers and sacrament. But uh, I put this proposition before you. Tell me what you'd rather. If you had an investment broker come to you and lay before you two portfolios, and he said that I have one portfolio that guarantees 1,000% return on investment 100% of the time, or I have this other portfolio that uh, gives you about a 500% return on investment 40% of the time. Which of those two portfolios are you going to invest in? The former, right? Give me 1,000%, 100% of the time. Friends, I put before you God's portfolio and that of the world. Will you spend your precious time and energy pursuing the things of this world which are of lesser quality and patently uncertain. This world can promise you uh, everything in it, and yet men so often miscarry in the pursuit of the things of this world. How many people have you seen surrender their soul that they might gain the world, and even once they have it, it's unsatisfying. It's transient. It slips through their fingers. It wastes away. Will you pursue your precious time and energy and your soul into the things of this world or will you invest in the things of the eternity which are of greater quality, 1,000%, and they are guaranteed by God? Burroughs says of those in eternity, 
that they so often, um, that, that as men miscarry in this life, that is not so with the people of eternity. He says, a man may be diligent as possible in earthly business and yet miscarry, but show me a man or a woman who was diligent in seeking the things of God and eternal life and miscarried. You know, and I think we get to heaven. I don't think that we're ever going to find one saint who said, man, I wish I spent more time at the lake. I wish I'd gotten that bigger truck. I wish I would have upgraded to that bigger house or had that finer jewelry or the nicer clothes. No, they would say, all that I lost for the sake of gaining Christ, I'd give it all in 10 times more to have him. David and, the, uh, Tra- David and Travis in structuring tonight's worship, I don't know if they were reading my mind. Certainly the hope Holy Spirit was superintending it. Both Philippians 3, 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. Christ and the things of heaven are of infinitely greater value and worth than anything you would leave behind for his sake. And so would you cast your golden crown Would you cast your time, your talents, your energy, anything that you would hold on to and say, this is most precious to me. Leave those at the foot of the cross. Cling to the precious Savior. And commit yourself, even this day, to say, Lord, I need that resurrection in life. I need to be reckoned dead to sin and alive in you. Look to Jesus Christ. Set your mind on the things of heaven. Look full in Christ's glorious face that the things of earth may grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so live out your new identity. Live out that new identity even as you await the great and glorious coming of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray.